What we also like to understand very, very early uh, in the sales uh, process is if people come recommended, because that's a very high predictor of, um, of becoming a customer. Uh, so what we typically ask is not, have you been recommended by anybody? Uh, but we ask them, do you know any other company that is working with X, X being uh, your company? Because that will also capture the indirect recommendations, right? Maybe you are a software as a service company. Uh, I don't know, you sell project management software. Maybe somebody else saw your software as a partner. They didn't recommend it. They just saw it, uh, right? And uh, that means uh, that this will capture that. And that also typically means a very high uh, degree of they would like to buy. Project A Podcast. Hello, everyone, to a new episode of the Project A Podcast. I'm Philip, a CMO at Project A Ventures. And today we have a very special guest here from Hamburg, uh, Björn Sjut. He's the managing director of the Think3 Group and a very seasoned, in the positive sense, uh, marketing professional. So I'm very happy to deep dive in, uh, into B2B marketing today with him. Welcome, Björn. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Um, I mentioned that you're, um, you founded and also are the managing director of the Think3 Group. Maybe you can explain a little bit um, why you are a marketing professional and what Think3 is doing today. Sure. Yeah, we founded Think3 a few years ago with the aim of having a group of specialized online marketing companies. And today we cover four topics. Uh, Think3 Bismuth covers B2B performance marketing. Think3 Commerce covers a lot of marketplaces as uh, second largest Amazon optimizer in Europe. And then we have units for CRM and BI and analytics. And I'm working in marketing, particularly performance marketing uh, for, well, probably... 15 years now in one uh, or the other form uh, because I started early in university uh, generating leads for private universities uh, with medienstudienführer.de and uh, then uh, later joined a large publisher eltern.de and then went into the dating industry and was head of uh, international marketing and sales for B2 and CDATE. And who was it who got you into online marketing first? That's a very good question because I originally started out as a journalist. I worked as a freelance journalist uh, for technology publications when I was still in school. And then also my fascination with online began. And I can't really remember what was my first official online marketing capacity. Uh, it doesn't matter, but you, you mentioned uh, briefly what you did in university studying uh, generating leads. I think that's probably was back in the days when also uh, online marketing was not that as professionalized as it is today. And there were quite some low-hanging fruits and it was e easy or interesting to experiment with that, I guess. Yeah. Today you're here to talk um, about B2B marketing. Um, so maybe to give it a, a very easy start. Um, what do we have to bear in mind when we think about the differences between classic B2C marketing and B2B marketing? Um, we also, as Project A, see a bit of a shift in our portfolio. Uh, we have increasingly uh, more and more B2B companies in the portfolio. Um, and I think it, it would be very good to start with a, a general uh, thought about in, in what ways does B2B and B2C marketing differ? Right. Well, I think B2B marketing is 
really interesting. It's intellectually interesting because it's much more complex to measure uh, than B2C marketing, particularly if you compare, for example, B2C e-commerce uh, and uh, B2B. In B2B, obviously, our audiences are much smaller and much more specialized. So we really need to think about uh, targeting. If we see, for example, media agencies taking a cut out of uh, the media spend and say, well, it's probably not a great model in any way, but particularly not for B2B because a lot of the focus is in avoiding media budget uh, mm -hmm. because you need to target and improve targeting better all the time. Uh, secondly, we have very different uh, uh, conversion paths uh, to B2C. Uh, typically, we don't have impulse buying, uh, but mm -hmm. rather long uh, sales cycles, often over months or maybe over years, right? Uh, one of our clients in the portfolio is Tesa, who are also in the automotive industry. And when they try to convince, let's say, a car maker to change uh, how a new dashboard is implemented, right? That it couldn't, shouldn't be screwed, but uh, uh, glued. Uh, uh, that's like a sales cycle over years. Uh, so it's interesting to look at these online, offline sales cycles and how you can measure that uh, over long periods of time. Very different uh, to think about identifiers. And then I would say it's obviously also not uh, a single person involved, uh, typically in most decisions, like when we buy, let's say, clothes online uh, at Zalando or any other platform, it's typically just us that we have to measure an attribution uh, journey in B2B. We really need to think about company ROI attribution. Who are the stakeholders in those companies? What are the different messages to those people? And how can we actually measure and deduce how they are involved in the purchasing decision? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think later on in the podcast, we're also going a bit into depth when it comes to the team uh, that, that I need as a, as a founder in B2B and the tech setup. Um, but for now, you mentioned that avoiding media spend is, is basically what, what comes to mind. Could you go a bit more into depth uh, on that or explain what you mean by that? So avoiding media spend. Yeah, one of the really interesting areas about B2B marketing is that you actually have a choice you have a choice between media budget and manpower. Uh, if we think about, we want to, uh, let's say, employ lead researchers and uh, uh, maybe have uh, smaller events that we could do with potential clients. We could do a roadshow, uh, right? Uh, visiting potential clients uh, in their offices. Uh, so we really can compare manpower costs uh, versus media budget. Uh, and uh, that's, I think, a huge mind shift in uh, most B2B organizations we see because uh, they traditionally think of marketing just as a cost, not as a measurable investment. And what we really like uh, to think about is, okay, how can we actually take the marketing spending that is done today and derive a measurement plan from that to determine whether it's worth it? can take conferences uh, and make them a performance marketing channel as well. You just have to try and understand really hard what kind of metrics in your organizations they are impacting. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned one channel specifically now, um, events. Um, when starting to think about these channels as a B2B founder, um, what comes to mind? How, how do I approach this uh, marketing mix question? Yeah, good, good question. If conferences or events are often a difficult choice for founders, right? Because they took be significant cost block uh, in your marketing. You have the binary decision to make, like, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? And uh, obviously, then it makes a lot of sense to think about how 
can I actually measure the impact? And we like to think about it on two levels. So we think about it in the first role of marketing, which we think is that any kind of B2B marketing activity should help us de-anonymize relevant interest. So we would then work with uh, teams and companies to see at that conference, did we really meet new potential customers? Were we able to de-anonymize relevant interest? That could be like a business card from a potential buyer, right? Uh, and then we would think about clever uh, ways to uh, increase that turnout rate. And then the second part that a conference is very, very useful for is obviously meeting with either existing clients or existing leads to advance deals. Mm -hmm. And what we do there on the measurement side is we typically look at how many contacts that are currently in a uh, deal process did we actually touch during that conference? And then in a cohort analysis, look at, let's say, after three months, did those deals advance faster? and with more, let's say, a potential revenue increase than deals in a control group uh, that weren't touched by the event. And if we do both, uh, we have kind of the lead function uh, and also the deal advancement function of conferences. And we feel with that, uh, you can feel quite comfortable uh, that you can fairly accurately measure the impact of events on your business. Mm -hmm. So turning events into a performance marketing channel, or at least uh, making it as trackable as possible so that you can uh, later on decide whether you're going to do this uh, event or fair again uh, based on the leads you generated and also based on uh, the cohort development of the people you spoke to, which were already in your funnel. Right. All right. Um, and when it comes to further marketing channels, because I think event marketing is one of the... Uh, Dinosaurs, let's say, of B2B marketing, right? It's it, it very it's very obvious in in a in a in a way. Um, what are maybe the online marketing channels you you also um, play when it comes to uh, supporting your customers, or maybe even um, combining those with um, event marketing? Yeah, I think you can uh, actually start with turning some event marketing tactics online. For example, by running webinars uh, and. Uh, Uh, then you can also think about not running just webinars at a certain point in time, but making them automatically available uh, to customers so that they can uh, jump in uh, uh, whenever uh, they see fit. And for that, we have then specialized uh, uh, ad channels, right? We would have, let's say, Facebook event ads. We would have Xing event ads, uh, which also would allow us to test different topics uh, of webinars easily and often founders then make the mistake oh, I don't want to have like prepare seven eight webinars doesn't matter you just have to come up with seven eight ideas you very quickly see which ones uh, get some traction and then you just cancel the other ones uh, that don't have any traction uh, so German companies are sometimes a bit uh, too cautious here uh, to um, uh, uh, put that on the back burner and then if we think about other marketing channels um, I think you I would argue you can basically do four things in marketing. So you can either target interest or intention. Uh, the typical approach would be Google uh, or Bing ads uh, or even specialized search engines in some countries when you are going internationally. And But there are also a few more B2B specific intention targeting engines. If you're running software as a service startup, uh, software comparison uh, platforms like a Captera or G2 Crowd uh, can be quite relevant. And there, obviously, you can also target the intention of people finding a certain kind of software. And in the English 
language market, uh, Quora is capturing an increasing amount uh, of traffic, of intention traffic, uh, so you can think about uh, doing content marketing there. And then the second area is targeting profiles, which would be Facebook, LinkedIn, Xing, uh, in some other countries, maybe in France, uh, there are localized platforms uh, that you can think about. And uh, then you can also, in some cases, target purchase data, where Amazon would be the gorilla, uh, uh, where you can think about, is any kind of purchase activity a relevant precursor for my target audience? And last but not least, you can retarget, right? And that you can both do pixel-based, uh, but also uh, think about um, uh, uh, building audiences based on CRM data, so you better get permissions in place uh, to do that properly. You mentioned LinkedIn only as a very small part of this. Um, when I talk to founders um, in the B2B space, uh, I think LinkedIn always comes first to mind when it comes to online marketing uh, for B2B. Um, when I listen to you now, it's just a small part of the whole um, online marketing approach. What do you think? Why is LinkedIn so present? And do you even see it working as well as the other activities? I would say it really depends on your audience. Uh, our perception is the more international your audience and the more sales-oriented your audience is, the more relevant LinkedIn uh, is as a channel. Uh, and then it can deliver amazing returns on ad spend on the advertising platform, but also you can leverage it very well as a, a lead research channel. With uh, You can leverage tools like LinkedIn Sales Navigator, for example, and uh, you can also, which I think is often overlooked, treat uh, the LinkedIn profiles of your founders as relevant organic reach, right? So uh, typically when we work with clients, uh, one of the first things is to look at what should be the face uh, of the customer who will stay probably very long in that company. Uh, and then how do we find a relevant process uh, when you're running, for example, software as a service startup, that you add every lead that's relevant as a contact because that's how you build organic reach uh, on LinkedIn. It's not really the reach of your company page uh, and you can be very sure that you'll need to pay LinkedIn for that every time you want to reach uh, followers. Uh, uh, but um, uh, the uh, reach that comes uh, from, let's say, the C-level executives or the founders, that can be quite tremendous, particularly if you do clever tricks like comment baiting uh, in your posts uh, to uh, optimize that. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, so we call this personal branding, um, and I think we have two um, very good examples in the portfolio at least. Um, one is obviously Alex Graf from Spryker, um, who I think is very, very active in that space, doing a really good job at this. The second is Ronny Wojne from Micropsy, a smaller um, B2B company, who's also, I feel, more and more present in, in, uh, in the social channels, particularly on LinkedIn, um, right. uh, apl applying all of these, all of these methods. Um, when you think about the classic um, media spending on LinkedIn and other platforms, the question of content also is relevant. So how do I, what do I need to make LinkedIn a successful channel? Or even um, when we come more to the intent, uh, so further down in the funnel, uh, you mentioned Bing and AdWords. Um, how do I, what kind of content do I need? Oftentimes um, people relate to pain points, so really figuring out um, what is the pain point of the potential buyer and then basically mapping that to um, solutions that the company provides. Um, how do you think about uh, content when it comes to online marketing for B2B? 
Yeah, I totally agree with the pain point uh, strategy because um, uh, that's obviously something that we try to solve with whatever product we are advertising, right? So we think uh, marketing is quite easy. Uh, you just have to think about what are the people doing that don't yet use your product uh, to try to solve the problem you're solving now. And then you need to go where they are now, right? And uh, uh, obviously, then it's very, very, very interesting to think about like who's aggregating uh, these audiences today. Where are they bundled up? Where uh, can I reach them at scale, uh, preferably? And how can I then talk about the pain point that they're most likely having and how I'm solving that? Uh, and then uh, LinkedIn is obviously can be great, uh, and uh, as LinkedIn is quite large platform. It can, uh, depending on the pain point you're solving for which kind of professional, it might not be just ad spend, it might also be personal relationship building, might be LinkedIn groups, uh, might be um, a systematic link res uh, lead research and outreach uh, to them uh, if the pain point is relevant enough. So we have a tremendous opportunity there. And then I think often we have a debate between gated and ungated content. So should we squeeze out uh, a lead? And uh, we would argue it's just different levels of motivation. So you could uh, think about doing both. Um, if you really look carefully, uh, for example, what kind of uh, interest you can de-anonymize also from ungated content. So if somebody fills out a lead form for you, that's easy. They're probably fairly motivated. The only challenge is the further away your pain point white paper is actually from your product, the more difficult it is to build on this interest in sales, right? Because you might provide a great service uh, in aggregating interesting, I don't know, uh, content for a specific pain point. It's just very far away from the service that you provide. Then you'll typically find that selling to those companies is very difficult because they don't even know about your service at that point. And uh, if we talk about ungated content, what we often uh, see is if uh, people click on it uh, and then let's say engage with a post on your website if you do those posts clever you build in some interactive elements that uh, people then can engage with it allows you to measure content engagement quite well and it also allows you to typically de-anonymize the company that interest is coming from because uh, these people on a desktop are typically locked into their company uh, network and even in Google Analytics, you can just open up the network name report and then see what uh, uh, companies are actually engaging with what kind of content. And there are some specialized tools you can leverage, like a lead feeder or lead forensics or sales viewer or so that you can use to then have that in a bit more comfortable uh, manner. Uh, but that's very powerful in our view to understand which companies are probably in the market uh, for um, uh, a solution that you're providing and then uh, build, for example, lead research processes on top of that. Quite a lot of good uh, tricks already, I think. Um, you mentioned in the end, marketing is quite easy. You just have to find um, the, the right audience that has a pain point that you can solve in the right space um, and then convey the right message. Um, you briefly mentioned white papers, which is, I think, the second big buzzword uh, after LinkedIn when it comes to B2B marketing out there. Um, White papers, however, need a lot of content. And just prior to this podcast, um, we briefly discussed how you think about these content modules, um, because not every B2B company can afford having a full-time writer um, or even a journalist or someone who knows very well how to explain a very complex product in right. easy words and probably also put some nice infographics in there and 
create relevant content um, for the for the user who's interested. Um, so how do you think about content in general when it comes to these white papers? And maybe you can also refer back to these content modules that you uh, mentioned before the podcast. Yeah, so I totally agree. I think often white papers seem like a mountain to climb, uh, right? Uh, it uh, seems you don't want to have some hastily written thing out there because then if people actually download and see it it just reflects poorly uh, on you if it's just not good content so uh, what we typically suggest is if you don't have those resources uh, to do this in this full length think about how can you enable your audience to make better decisions uh, with content and often it's surprisingly easy to come up with checklists right whenever let's say you are a software as a service startup you're selling to a certain audience And if you could, as a founder, give all of your experience in condensed form uh, to your audience, why should they go for either your software or one of your competitors, it can typically result in a very useful checklist. And you can often build that in one afternoon, all right? Then you may, maybe you'll make it a bit more beautiful, but it's done in two days. Uh, so we think that's often a great shortcut, uh, but still have helpful content. And it's uh, typically much lower effort than doing a full white paper. And then the second area we really like to think about at the moment is where in your organization is content creation actually happening now that might be relevant for future customers. And often that's, for example, in the customer service outbox, right? Because they're writing very detailed how-to emails uh, for clients. Or maybe it's in the founder's outbox uh, because they write these detailed sales pitches that if we could just get access to that and anonymize it a little bit, uh, we could, with a small content team, turn those uh, content into great useful insights. And there we often think about content modules, what we spoke about, because say, maybe our primary goal shouldn't be to create that one white paper that rules them all, uh, but maybe we should think about these content snippets that we get from the organization that we perceive as very useful what is actually the best format and platform you can uh, move this on? So we can often have little case study videos, uh, right? I'm a fan of case study videos that are newsfeed compatible, have a little text on it uh, and not uh, turn every case study you have into, I don't know, a five-pager uh, PDF because then people can consume it on the go. Uh, and uh, it's uh, so... There, my recommendation would be look into your organization who is actually writing stuff that might be useful and then come up with a concept which can be as simple as BCCing uh, a colleague on the content team uh, whenever a few uh, colleagues think uh, that's relevant. And then turning this content, however, into a white paper or you mentioned um, newsfeed compatible um, videos. Um, would those be like testimonials or... Um, What do you refer to when you say um, short videos that are use cases? Yeah, it can also be how-tos, uh, right? Uh, so how to do something with your software. If you are a software-as-a-service uh, company, it can be uh, just a few reviews uh, after one another, which would be uh, testimonials. Uh, but it can also be any kind of insight. Uh, there are tools like Lumen5, for example, which allows... Uh, Uh, people to build these kind of newsfeed ready videos uh, without any video editing competence. So with these tools, um, the barrier seems much lower uh, to uh, get that into place. So let's say we do all of this and um, then the main goal would be to generate a lead, I assume. 
Um, how do we deal with this lead now? So is there immediately someone from sales calling or there's also the buzzword of lead nurturing around? Um, so how do you think about converting this lead uh, further down the funnel? Right. In my view, there's not the one process that's true for all leads, right? Because they will probably come into your, let's say, uh, sphere uh, uh, with different intentions and a different level of motivation. And uh, sometimes it's very easy to generate uh, leads around hot topics. So it's just not uh, it's just not manageable to call everybody uh, because maybe you'll generate hundreds or thousands uh, of leads with a more broadly interesting topic. So you really have to weed out uh, which uh, potential clients are interested in it. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, you might have very motivated uh, leads and then you want to either call them immediately or get uh, in touch via LinkedIn uh, or Xing immediately. So it really depends, in my view, on the motivation and the scale. Uh, so uh, in our view, sales colleagues should have a really strong say over this, uh, who they are interested in uh, touching very quickly and where do they want to have some sort of uh, nurturing played out. And often nurturing can just mean asking a follow-up question in an automated mail, uh, right? We often think of this lead nurturing as, well, there's a complex set of emails going out, but often to, it's surprising what people tell you if you ask them, <laughs> right? We often think about this very indirect measurement and saying, look, and then we'll send out this email, but if they click on it, then we'll follow up with a different sales process. In my view, it's too indirect uh, often. Uh, just think about the key question uh, that that person might be willing to answer and then also a value proposal that you can give them in return uh, and then just uh, uh, send an email very quickly back and see if they respond. So I agree that um, very quickly you can fall into the trap of making um, your strategies very structured and then you have like a, a lead, a marketing qualified lead, a sales qualified lead and you have co complex drip campaigns and everything which might be very beautiful from an intellectual perspective, but it's probably not what the customer needs um, because they're very individual at, at the end. You're referring to this, but how? what is the alternative to this uh, very rigid structure? Um, because you said on the one hand, we, we can't call everybody and maybe even most people don't want that. And also at the, at the other end, we should not come up with an over complexified um, setup of drip campaigns that, that we play out to the people. What is the, what is the middle ground that you're referring to when you say that you should probably just understand what kind of questions is the potential customer um, willing to answer? So how, does my, how should my setup uh, in between these two extremes probably look like? Right. So obviously really depends on the customer and the company and what you're selling, but let's try to generalize it a little bit. Um, what we typically do is we sit down with the sales colleagues and ask them, look, if you could ask your leads one question, what would be the question that you ask where you would have the most confidence to say if this is a likely customer or a more unlikely customer, right? So what kind of questions have high predictive value? And uh, obviously they can have something to do with the product that you're selling. Uh, so for example, let's say you uh, sell something that has an investment hurdle, um, uh, then a good question can be, uh, to say, uh, we're really excited that you're interested in our solution just to uh, uh, help us service you the best way. 
did you already plan in this year's budget uh, for an investment in X, uh, right? And if you get a response to that, obviously immediately qualify, right? And you can do this with two links, right? So yes, we uh, actually want to get uh, going this year or no, we are more interested in a long-term strategy on how to tackle this. And obviously as a sales team, I want to immediately touch everybody who is has a budget installed. And maybe don't ask about the specific budget height uh, at that level because then often employees are uncertain if they're allowed to share it. Uh, so you get lower response rates. So I think that's a typical example. Um, on the other hand, what we also like to understand very, very early uh, in the sales uh, process is if people come recommended because that's a very high predictor of, um, of becoming a customer. Uh, so what we typically ask is not have you been recommended by anybody? Uh, but we ask them, do you know any other company that is working with X, X being uh, your company? Because that will also capture the indirect recommendations, right? Maybe you are a software as a service company. Uh, I don't know, you sell project management software. Maybe somebody else saw your software as a partner. They didn't recommend it, they just saw it, uh, right? And uh, that means uh, that this will capture that. And that also typically means very high uh, degree of they would like to buy. Maybe they can't afford it yet, but you would still like to touch them via sales colleagues very quickly. Very interesting. You're referring to um, what is known in the B2C world as refer a friend or referral program, yeah. uh, which is for some products a very, very good um, marketing tool yeah. um, because <coughs> it usually incentivize people to invite friends. Um, so apart from asking these questions in a, in a very different way, that's interesting. How do you leverage refer a friend um, in B2B? Yeah, I think uh, this... This is a great channel to talk about. It's often overlooked uh, for too long, but typically it is your most profitable channel. Um, and for that, the first thing you need to do is you need to understand who's actually satisfied and enthusiastic uh, about your product. So you can do this with NPS scoring. There are a few companies out there that try to help uh, out with this uh, with a, a specified software like Zenloop, uh, for example. Um, but sometimes you can just get started with a Google form uh, or Microsoft form or whatever you're using a survey monkey uh, to generate data. And uh, then uh, the second thing uh, to do is uh, to enable them to more easily talk about your product and why you're satisfied with it. And often founders have the misconception that it's about money uh, or revenue sharing. It's um, one of our clients is Pipedrive. Uh, they uh, worked uh, on uh, a while back years ago, uh, also looked into why are people referring uh, their software? Why are they recommending it? And the monetary incentive was the smallest amount. It was in the single digits. Uh, the by far higher reasons were either I would like to help someone. Uh, so it's this very, mm, someone has a problem. I have a potential solution. I would like to help them. And secondly, uh, I'm just a really enthusiastic fan about it. And depending on the product that you're selling, maybe not both are applicable. Um, some B2B solutions, they will never have fans, right? They will never have fanboys. Uh, but um, at least this, I, I would like to help someone and I have a solution is typically true for everything in B2B. And then we can think about how can we enable people 
uh, to share that uh, more easily, right? Um, and can be a lot of tricks, uh, shareable uh, content, how to guides, checklists, uh, and then uh, following up with people that are satisfied uh, to ask them to pass this on, right? So write them an email. So it's, we're super happy that you're so excited about our tools and we're happy to always listen uh, to your concerns. If you ever come across a colleague in another company that faces similar challenges, why not forward them uh, this uh, checklist PDF? Or would you be willing to uh, have a 10-minute uh, reference call or something like that? Great. So I think that's definitely one of the overlooked channels. Um, I would argue also in B2C sometimes. Um, it's also one of the more easily trackable channels. So when we think of the stuff that's happening more in the upper funnel, so we've been talking about LinkedIn, but there are other channels. Um, how do you track those properly? Because we, we talked a lot about now um, what kind of channels you can use, what is the message on these channels. Um, in the end, I'm coming to the, to the question of attribution, um, which to the listeners of our podcast um, is, uh, is a topic that we sometimes touch, mostly in the B2C, B2C space so far. Um, I don't want to go too deep because I think we could do a, a probably a separate podcast on this topic because it quickly gets very complex. But maybe just, just as a primer, how is attribution different in the B2B world and how should I start thinking about it probably? Right. So maybe we can use this uh, to finalize talking about referrals. Uh, I already uh, said you should systematically ask this one question, like, do you know uh, any other company uh, that's working with uh, X? And if they say yes, you should also ask which one, <laughs> because that's your referral. Uh, and then proactively send them like a small gift, mm -hmm. uh, the referrals, because they won't expect it. And gifts are most powerful if people don't expect them. Right. So just a little process around sending that gift and not about tracking links uh, or so, because it will be messed up anyway, uh, right? Across device problems or so, just ask people uh, and then have a, a process about unexpected rewards uh, and little gifts uh, can go a long way. And then coming to all of the other channels. Uh, so when uh, I said you need to ask people, I really mean that uh, uh, because um, uh, you can always better stand on two legs than on one. And uh, often companies overinvest into technical attribution, and uh, you should should still do it, but you also should ask. Uh, particularly, uh, people are often excited about uh, I don't know SEA conversion results, but if you really look into it, most of it are brand searches, and brand isn't Google's doing, right? Uh, brand searches. I mean, something, someone gave people the idea uh, to look up your brand. So you really need to ask people. Uh, for example, you need to ask them the question, uh, where did you hear about us first? Uh, and uh, then secondly, you'll do um, a technical attribution. And for that, what you should typically do is uh, work with uh, campaign parameters all the time have them in the outbound uh, signatures uh, of your colleagues ensure that you have them in pdfs i see a lot of people that invest thousands in uh, white papers but all of the links in that pdf are untracked links they just show up as direct why uh, right because the only way to technically attribute that uh, you would have to uh, append uh, utm parameters or whatever tracking parameter system you use uh, and then uh, in an ideal world, 
you generate a sign up very, very quickly. Uh, so most companies still live in a world where even software as a service companies, where they track the account very differently from the lead. They shouldn't. You should have a, a, a constant identifier uh, for customer very, very early, ideally also through social logins. Um, uh, but that's more working on the technical side. Often uh, marketing teams are not thinking enough together with the product team. Uh, how can we de-anonymize uh, our interest in the product very early? And you can learn from HubSpot how to do that, right? HubSpot does a lot of lead generation through the HubSpot Academy. But if you sign up for the HubSpot Academy, it's not a HubSpot Academy account. It's a HubSpot account, uh, right? Uh, because you want to use that further down the funnel. And you also want them to enable users to, with one click start, you shouldn't have them fill out another form. They already have an account with you. So it gives you much more flexibility to think in that sense. And if you then get the permission uh, of people to track uh, personal profiles, you would like to write a very long history uh, with uh, basically the touched uh, pages and the touched uh, session attribution in your data warehouse, in your segment I.O., wherever you have that, um, because that then gives you the ability to roll this up into a company ROI, everybody that's on the same email domain, for example, and then look at all of the tracking parameters over a long period of time and then run any kind of attribution over that you want, uh, right? Uh, bathtub, uh, increasing, decreasing, whatever you feel like on Monday morning. So you mentioned a couple of tools in, in your last response, and I think that's probably the, the maybe the last part we can move to in this podcast, um, because we covered um, the whole acquisition part, we covered channels, we covered a bit of lead nurturing and very briefly now attribution, which I think we can talk in another podcast about more. Um, so the tech setup that I need as a founder from a B2B company, you mentioned HubSpot, you mentioned a data warehouse. What is it that I could start with? What's probably the leanest setup and how is it going to evolve over time? Yeah, I think um, you probably should have one place to store leads and also customers uh, over a longer uh, period of time because that's when we think about marketing being uh, de-anonymizing relevant interest uh, you need to store that relevant interest somewhere right and uh, that should be some sort of crm solution um, and you can start with a hubspot you can start with a pipe drive i think there are a lot of very affordable tools out there that you can um, uh, easily implement and you don't have these huge Salesforce or SAP cost barriers uh, in the setup. Uh, and uh, then um, uh, secondly, on the marketing side, you would probably want to have some uh, a pixel attribution system that also feeds into your CRM uh, so that you can see if leads are engaging with your content again, right? And informs your sales team. And HubSpot comes with HubSpot Pixel, but for Pipedrive, there are solutions that do this as well. Like this OutFunnel, which is the startup for the from a former Pipedrive CMO, Andros Pode, uh, which basically then mimics the same uh, thing on uh, the Pipedrive ecosystem. And uh, you can also use Google Analytics for that. Google Analytics is not really great uh, for B2B, uh, depending on your uh, organizational 
setup because, for example, it's a bit of a pain point to do company ROI. Uh, so you need to work with custom dimensions uh, in a clever way. Uh, and you also uh, need to capture each hit uh, in a smart way so that you force the Google Analytics API to give you hit level data back. Uh, and uh, that's a bit more technical than you need to be on, let's say, a HubSpot site or a mixed panel site where you can then also implement by default organizational tracking and B2B tracking where you can roll up into a company dimension. So you mentioned HubSpot and Salesforce. Um, and I think it's one more interesting question is the silo between sales and marketing. Because right. oftentimes we come across a setup where the sales team is already quite successfully working with Salesforce, for example, and then the marketing team says, we need HubSpot, and then they combine both. Um, and that's where the, where the silo thinking starts to basically break down or, or even increase because people tend to, to spend more time in their or prefer their tools. Um, so on this very example of these two tools, could you maybe explain briefly how you think about the silos between sales and marketing? You talked a lot about de-anonymizing, which I think um, is something that salespeople know very well because their audiences are usually not anonymous anymore. Um, so maybe you could give some context on this whole marketing and sales silo thinking, maybe um, in the context of uh, the, the two tools that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, if you want to move away from marketing costs into a world of marketing investment uh, that you can measure, then you really need to care about how what's happening to the leads that you're generating right and uh, uh, you will need to do cohort analysis over long uh, sales cycles uh, to determine which marketing channels are really successful and for that as a marketer you need to think about wherever the sales processes are happening and also how to push your uh, identifiers through let's say Google Google click ID that you want to use for offline conversion tracking so that being said there shouldn't be the silos uh, right um, if you are using a Salesforce or a HubSpot uh, or a pipe drive or any other uh, platform combination I don't really care uh, what I think most teams do too often is uh, they they license too many tools uh, and then even in a cloud world uh, have uh, two challenges they need to keep those tools in sync and uh, when they're growing exponentially which project a is probably expecting from them uh, they uh, will also have exponentially growing tool costs and uh, there it makes really sense to think about uh, particularly on the nurturing side look what are we really interested in doing here uh, with our leads that we acquire? What are the kind of automations that we're going to do? And then look at what's the most affordable infrastructure to run this on. And often it's not one of these uh, predefined clouds. It's more often a best of breed approach because if you have simple uh, mailing uh, uh, desires uh, in nurturing, you can often use a very low cost uh, uh, email marketing automation platform and just keep it running alongside a Salesforce. I mean, even a MailChimp comes with a built-in uh, Salesforce connector. Uh, so often you don't need to go into these premium uh, all-in-one marketing cloud solutions. Uh, HubSpot, for example, has a pricing where for the marketing part of HubSpot, you need to pay for all of the contacts that you have in your CRM. That's not nice. Uh, it uh, means uh, that you are kind of forced into uh, overpaying uh, for your marketing automation infrastructure. And if you keep that separate uh, and uh, invest a little bit into thinking about uh, APIs, then you can uh, 
very often build a much more affordable infrastructure without a lot more com technology complexity. And last but not least, who's running this tech stack? So um, the question of the team setup. Um, we talked about white papers earlier and how to generate content. Now we talked about a couple of tools that you might want to use even early on. Um, so what does a typical um, B2B marketing team um, look like from your experience in the beginning and maybe how does it grow over time? Yeah, I think in the beginning um, you need uh, two core competencies uh, inside uh, your team. Uh, the first competency is to understand your customers really well or your potential customers if you are starting out. And secondly, to manage uh, freelancers or agencies really well. Because in the beginning, you don't know yet uh, what marketing channels will work out, right? So you uh, need to test things in a very structured way. You need to test, for example, can I really scale through intention targeting uh, on AdWords? Or is this a dead end? Uh, uh, is LinkedIn a useful channel for me? Or are the CPCs just way beyond my uh, conversion capabilities that I have? And uh, we think that most companies then do the mistake by saying, mm, I, we don't know yet, so we'll hire two juniors and then we'll give them 20K, 40K, whatever in uh, money. And then typically it doesn't work, but then you don't know anything, uh, right? Because you don't know, did those people, uh, were those people not able to scale LinkedIn uh, because they never did it before or because the channel just doesn't work. So uh, that's probably a way where you can then work if you're a Project A portfolio company with uh, the services that you provide uh, centrally or you can work with us or any other kind of freelancers. But you need to be able internally to determine if they're doing a good job. Uh, so you need to be able to read, uh, for example, an AdWords change history uh, on the account and determine <laughs> did the people actually do something and what did they do. Uh, uh, that's the first competency to build. And once you start paying an external uh, partner, let's say more than one and a half FTEs, you should in-house that uh, because you can do it more affordably in-house and you can also do it better in-house. I think that's also true. It's true for B2C marketing, but even more true for B2B marketing is the best performance marketing is done in-house. Uh, because it's closest to the data, uh, to the lower funnel data. It's also closest to the customer understanding. It's closest to the customer insight uh, with say, you just can't replicate that uh, long term. But you need to understand first which channels are going to matter uh, to you. And then you have customer understanding internally. You have the ability to lead uh, um, uh, then external partners uh, and then also be able to in-house it. And then you need to be able to produce content that's valuable uh, in-house because that's also very hard to do externally. You can do generic SEO always uh, externally um, and have uh, uh, keyword research done and content built around that. But this really useful content, for example, the checklists uh, for a buyer, you can't really outsource that in my opinion. You need to be able to do that internally. So those would be the resources I would build first in an in-house team. So summarizing, um, starting with one person, rather a bit more senior, uh, an experienced performance marketing manager with a very analytical mindset, and then growing the team later on if you see what channels work, um, uh, and probably two, three to four FTE, if I understand you correctly, adding um, especially someone who is good on the content side. Yeah, correct. It can also be a very quantitative content marketer that you have as a first hire. Uh, just 
don't have this one wizard who tries to do it all uh, and then say, ah, I need a senior guy because if you burn that person doing, I don't know, AdWords bit optimization or uh, LinkedIn uh, ad account management, it's just not worth it, all right? It's, uh, uh, you should outsource that in the beginning, but be able to understand if it's done properly. All right, Björn, thanks a lot. Uh, I think we covered a whole range of topics. We could go deeper, of course. Um, maybe we get the chance to do that, especially on the attribution topic at some point. That would be probably interesting to a lot of B2B listeners to the podcast. Thanks to everybody for listening in and talk to you next time. All right. Thank you very much. Goodbye.